listener. Um, hope you're well. Things are going pretty well here. It's warming up in Brooklyn. It's been nice to get outside and have a bit more physical practice. Get a little bit of vitamin D, some sun. So I hope that if you are in the northern hemisphere that you are stepping out. Make a little time for that yourself. Um, I guess if you're in the southern hemisphere, I hope you're well too. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but today's episode, we're going to talk about embodied practice a little bit, but I am very excited to share with you an interview with Nick Marks. Um, he's a statistician, worked as an economist, and as you're going to hear us talk about in today's episode, we both have a passion and an experience in looking at things from multiple levels. Um, Nick, much greater levels than I have ever been so fortunate to influence, but looking at individuals and how individuals make up parts of teams, teams make up organizations and, and infrastructures and then governments and societies and cultures. And then this global human experience that we're all little tiny parts of, of a big, big picture. And I was fortunate enough for him to make the time to come on the show and to talk about his experience in working working at the government level, uh, at the cultural societal level, and looking at big economic systems like the capitalism, hmm. and then ultimately settling into some ideas and, and I think some really transcendent forward thinking around what it means to work on oneself as an individual and seeing others as individuals, to running a team and where you honor the individual within that team, and also working now his current work using data, using statistics in order to monitor and then influence happiness and well being. And also to do that in the construct of oh no, this little pandemic thing that we're all juggling. And I was pretty honored to have him come on the show and spend time talking with me at the level that we did. Um, he's brilliant and humble and generous of thought um, and even generous of ear, right? There's a few points in the show where I share my thoughts on some of the big picture things he's talking about. And, and I when I shut off the mic, I'll confess to being a bit self-conscious to talk to someone who thinks and works at, at that level. You're like, ah, what does he, what does he care what I think? But, but he does, he did care what I think. Um, and so I hope that you enjoy absorbing the wisdom of a big picture thinker who genuinely wants to use that wonderful scope and his own unique strengths and skill sets to reach this goal that we are all working to have a happy, healthy, successful life, and that we all have, have on some level the, the purpose to do so. Let me talk a bit about using your strengths, using what you're good at, using your gifts to contribute to purpose, however that means to you. Um, it was really just delightful to get to interview him, and I hope it's delightful for you to listen to it. Um, so... Let's get to it. Fitness, wellness, well-being, relationships, our own minds, building a life that works for each of us, and of course, the care of the body that we live those lives in. Welcome to Better Than Fine. This is a podcast about living a life above zero. 
you know, one that's better than fine. And it's for those people who are looking to explore themselves, one another, and the lessons of the world around us. And we do that by exploring the intersection of traditional wisdom and modern science. And I'm your host, Darlene Marshall. I'm an expert in wellness and well-being with nearly a decade in the fitness industry. I've got a master's degree in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, which is the scientific study of well-being. But really, I've spent my adult life exploring the human condition, looking for leverage points that I can use to unstick others along their journey. And this podcast is one of those unsticking tools. So let's get to it. Nick, welcome to Better Than Fine. Um, it's delightful to have you. And I want to start by just saying, you know, so many people who live in this overlap of, of like something else and well-being, I like to say that we're kind of like, we're like the unicorn convention because <laughs> we never know how to tell when somebody asks what we do, we're like, well. Um, so I guess first, can you just share with us kind of what, what you're on about? Like, what are you in the unicorn convention? What am I in the unicorn convention? Um, uh, I'm an alchemist. Um, I, <laughs> you I, are. <laughs> I think of myself an alchemist, jokingly, obviously, about turning lead into gold. But basically, what I try and do is uh, I'm a statistician by trade, and I create measures of people's experience of life, their well-being, their happiness, and with the but always with the idea that we are trying to help people lead better lives. Um, and so, how do you create statistics that help people reflect on their lives? How do you create statistics that help teams and organizations improve employee experience that's what i mainly work on now that i have worked a lot on population well-being too so that's that's what i do so i i think of myself as a my weapon of choice is statistics about how we try and improve the world and i think it's really interesting to then take that leveraged weapon of choice and really from what i've seen looking at your body of work make this intention choice to, okay, it's not just about, you know, making more money or making more widgets. It's about like making things more better, um, which I think is really interesting. I mean, I, you know, if I rather grandly look at, back at my so-called career, which is more of a random walk, I think, I think basically I, you know, I wasn't quite sure what the purpose of life was when I was young. So I started exploring that and I explored that with numbers. I also trained as a therapist. So I, I did that with sort of one-to-one -one people stuff as well. So it was basically a sort of a long exploration into that. And then, you know, my work became popular, which is kind of nice. <laughs> this is kind of nice, right? <laughs> um, okay. A second ago, you said that when you were younger, you weren't sure what your purpose of life was then. Does that imply that you have a sense of purpose of life now? Oh, for sure. Tell me about that. Well, it's to make the world a better place little by little and, and to make my contribution and to also understand that it's crazy. When I was young, I wanted to change the world. That's kind of crazy. I can do my bit. And, and actually, you also have to learn to look after yourself, as you, especially when you take on big goals. You know, I, I mean, I, I took on things like GDP is a bad measure of progress. I mean, that's not going to get easily changed in my lifetime. Or, or you know, it, climate change has been something I've thought about and worked on a lot you know you're an individual in that process you know you're not responsible for it all but you're obviously responsible for what you do with your life so you take responsibility for what you can do with it but don't not enjoy yourself as you go along you know so um that that seemed to me a very very critical thing to do yeah 
Oh, you touched on so many rich things in there that I I'm swimming a little bit in it because you touched on like, don't not enjoy yourself, but also the take care of yourself part, but also the desire to change the world and do it little by little. Um, and there's so, you just said essentially everything I want to talk to you about all in like three sentences. <laughs> I'm not sure where to go. Um, because you're, you're broadly interested in human well-being. You mentioned that you've worked on changing the measure from GDP to happiness. You're working now at the micro level of, of week to week pulse happiness in work. Um, and one of the things that I find really inspirational about your work, and I find it also in myself and my, in my work with my clients, is you're working at the, the micro level, like the moment level, the week, the individual, to the group, then to the organization. And then you've also worked at this ultra macro of like nation level. <laughs> which just to me shows a mind that understands that it is all interconnected and interdisciplinary and it has this um, scope level and individual level effect simultaneously. Um, and I don't know that there's a question there, but I really would love to hear your thoughts on it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I think that when I started out in my twenties, I was you know, quite into the idea that Socrates said about know thyself. That, you know, if you want to do something in the world, knowing yourself is a good place to start. And so, you know, I started off in my journey thinking about, yeah, I mean, I, 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 thinking about what did I want to contribute in this life? And I, I did that quite early. Um, and my mother was a family therapist. So in a way that took me into the world of therapy. But then I came out of that thinking, well, actually, although I, I enjoy the therapeutic process particularly for myself more than being a therapist actually if I'm <laughs> strictly honest uh you know then then I I thought well actually I'm I don't think it's very good to sort of help people be healthy in unhealthy systems so I'm more systems thinking so you know my statistics comes in there so I'd sort of just always been juggling these two bits and I actually did a great master's course in in the 1990s on change at an individual a group and an organizational level and understanding those different levels of change and what emerges at each level and thinking about how the interventions are different I think has probably set me up for the kind of work I did and I went beyond the organization into the societal and in lots of ways by happenstance you know I just was doing work and stink tank said why don't you come do some work with us on well-being and I went okay why not I'll try that you know and uh, and then took it to being you know, within nine, 10 years, I got a TED talk out of that because he'd done some interesting work. So it, it I, I don't know, I was sort of aware, I was open to how I worked, I think somehow, I don't know. What I'm hearing in there that I think is important to highlight for anybody is this idea of, I, I knew that I wanted to improve things. I knew what I was good at, which is like, hearken to me of the positive psychology strengths approach. And then I let the process lead me to good work which is, I think, solid advice for anyone out living in the world doing anything, right? Like yeah, have positive intention. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I sometimes run a workshop like for students, like what's, what's your strength? What's the, what's the big issue that motivates you and what's your strength so you can contribute? And it, it doesn't really matter to me if it's, you know, donkeys, you know, it can be donkey sanctuaries, <laughs> you, know, it, it, you know, there's value in looking after animals and certainly biodiversity and all sorts of things, you know, but it's like, if that's what your passion is so it could be you know it could be um you know uh racial issues gender issues it can be climate change it can be social justice poverty whatever it is that really motivates you particularly an injustice in the world and then what can i contribute to doing anything about that you know and and i and i you know i came at it having done a 
economics at university and statistics so I kind of had a go at the economic system for a while <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> <How was that>? <laughs> <laughs> and then you know eventually you slightly I mean you have to watch your energy levels when you're doing issues on big things so you know if oh. people are doing stuff on climate change or or, or, or gender issues or race issues they're gonna they're gonna knack you they're gonna tire you out because they're big big issues you know so you do have to think about where's my energy and how I sustain it to go along so that you can continue to lead a happy life yourself it's not much point being a happiness person if you don't actually happy yourself in my opinion and strangely a lot of them aren't you know strangely quite a lot of the people in the happiness movement are, are grumpy old men I'm I'm going to back slowly away from the comments I have on that necessarily. Um, well, but I think you also bring up an, a relevant point in at least the happiness world. We do find that most of the work is is being done right by older men, and or at least I should say the foundational work. And now yeah. I think we're seeing a lot of these newer waves of practitioners and researchers contributing from a, a broader variety of perspectives. And so I'm hopeful that that we're going to see those shifts. But I also think like as a, you know, as a traditionally a fitness person, yeah. right? Like I have a personal training background and then a wellness coaching supplement to it. And now a master's from, from Penn, um, from MAP and coming in as a, like a somatic, like a body person into that world has been fascinating. Cause here's all these people talking about well-being. And I'm like, yeah, but you're completely neglecting the body that all of that well-being is experienced and felt in. Um, can I, can I get you to go for a walk and take a deep breath, please? <laughs> you know, I mean, but that's, that's my challenge too. You know, I, I, you know, um, take my body for granted far too much mm. yeah. and, it, and it's interesting isn't it I think there's different personality types of that I mean I, I when I was young I was very intellectually um, uh, identified you know I was a, you know a, a scholar basically and you know and went to Cambridge and so you're very much you know you're the brain it doesn't really matter if you don't do the cross-country run and um, and I've discovered really the only only exercise I can do is walking and swimming <laughs> everything else is, yeah but it's like you know and I'm not I should be fitter I should be slimmer I should be all this stuff but there again you know I also think I'm happy so right but and that's <laughs> that's the shooting right like oh man you self you corrected yourself there because I think there's a reframe not to get all coachy on you but <laughs> there's a reframe in there that you throw the should I should be this I should be that but you're happy if you're healthy, if you like what you're doing, all the motivational research says you're way better focusing on the happiness thing than you are focusing on that other stuff. So what's it matter? I mean, that that is 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 kind of the thing. Yeah. And then and there again, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a difficult one. I mean, I, I'm sure I do deep down have some body shame like quite a lot of people do. Actually. Oh, yes. You know, and I think that's, you know, that's a big issue. Well, you bring up, you circle me back to something you said earlier that I really wanted to come back to. So let's just carry the wave here. You'd said doing the work on being individually healthy, but in an unhealthy system, right? Like yeah. that you're, this is another good example of, at least from my world, we created this unhealthy system of shaming people into, you know, being a certain weight or eating a certain way that ultimately, even if they're successful, makes them unhappy because of where their focus is. And then they revert. So you're creating a temporary health in an unhealthy ecosystem, thereby poisoning the well. Yeah. Um, and it seems like as we talk about this more, I'm seeing more and more ripples of like, oh yeah, and and the work thing, and then the home is stressful, and then the body stuff. Um, so where do you see, and at least in your work and your experience, the 
approach to solution? Because to me, it seems like the approach, the solution is individual and systemic at the same time. And I don't necessarily know how to approach helping in any of it. What do you think? Well, there are different intervention points, aren't there? And I think that's kind of where the levels are interesting. There's always intervention points at the individual level. You know, even when we're in circumstances of our not of our choosing, there are things that we can do to improve our situation. Um, and we often find ourselves in systems. I mean, when we're children, we're not, we don't choose which family we're born into. And we can, we can be blessed like I was to be born into pretty, pretty functional, certainly loving uh, and, and actually wealthy family. Um, and, you know, and other people are born into extremely difficult circumstances, you know, with abusive parents or separated and, and, and poverty and all sorts of things. So there's systems that really, really shape us. And within that, there still is something about the human spirit, about how we can do. And we, we find that people come out of very difficult circumstances to really thrive. We find some people born into very benign circumstances really sink. What's absolutely clear is more people thrive in benign circumstances and more people sink in bad ones. But there's things that go on there. So it's a, it's a complex space. And, you know, um, and I think sometimes the burden burden of intervention falls too much on the individual so there are people that go on about happiness at work which I'm dealing with at the moment that basically say it's a choice and I think that's kind of rubbish I mean there's some choice in it but really the system shapes us much more than we realize and I think the whole of behavioral psychology is showing that and uh, you know and so we and then does it that's even before you get into food systems and other systems you know which which shapes so um so I, I become interested about how you work at the system level, but then you get into like, what level of system do you want to work at? Do you want to work at the national? Do you want to work at the sort of, you know, you know so the macro? Uh, do you want to work at the, I think some people call it the meso, which is sort of organizational level. Do you want to work at the micro, the individual? And I kind of find myself quite interested in teams and teams and families are similar in the sense that they're similar sort of sizes. They're sort of three to eight people, you know, they're, they're, and that's very, and our experience of life is very proximal, very, very related to who we spend the most time with and we're closest to emotionally. And um, so um, I think it's a really interesting intervention point to think of those small groups. And that tends to be where my focus is now. And in that focus, I know a moment ago, you mentioned that oftentimes our circumstances as adults are not fully under our control, but then we have control on how we might manage them or handle them. Um, can you talk a bit about Friday Pulse and what you've seen in the last year? You know, I know we were, we were just talking about it offline a second ago, um, but where you're seeing this team level systems interventions be successful. Yeah. So Friday Pulse is basically what I'm doing latest, which is a, it's a, it's part measurement and it's part about how we improve uh, team experience. And the idea of choosing the team is that People are individuals are shaped by the team and then obviously teams together make up an organization that's what organizations are made up of so if you can get the team right you'll get good flow up to the organization you get good flow down to the to the individuals and so we help teams uh, measure how every week is and then also do things like say what's gone well what are we frustrated about is there anyone we want to thank so Barbara Fredrickson talk about positivity resonance. So basically when you thank and appreciate someone, you feel good for thanking them, they feel good for being thanked. If it's in public, everyone else feels great about it too. So you're trying to create that positivity resonance around positive emotions at a team level. And that helps the individual and it helps the organization, helps the organization because there's just so much evidence that happier teams are more productive, more collaborative, more creative, more innovative, people don't leave, everything is stacked up. So you're trying to look for that alignment between the levels that we were talking about earlier. 
and that's what Friday Pulse does. So as I said, measurement is 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 the entry point for our product. I'm a statistician, of course. <laughs> so um, you know, we ask people repeatedly, "How have you felt this work?" From very unhappy to very happy, and then we can plot graphs. So you know, this is an interesting social experiment that's gone on this last year. What do we do during a pandemic? And and of course, what happened, you know, last March uh, 2020 was. Everyone was anxious, frightened, you know, having to change the way they worked. And we saw all of our data absolutely bottom out. And then we saw a slow recovery back towards where people were as people adjusted to new ways of working. We only measure people that are working, we only measure them in our clients. And then we saw it basically flatten off towards the end of the year. And I thought, that's great. Look at that sort of how everything is for everyone, surely. And then just last weekend, the World Happiness Report came out and there were graphs in there about the happiness of workers across the whole UK. And for the first half of the year, it basically followed the shape of our curve. And then the second half of the year, really interestingly, there's a huge dip in the happiness of workers across the UK dealing with the second wave. And across our clients, they hold steady. And that's very interesting because that's basically saying that our platform is helping our clients be resilient and actually not you know, sink into the second wave uh, as much. It doesn't mean to say it wasn't a pressure for them, but they cope with it much better than certainly it looks like the general population. So that's quite heartening. And that's what data can show you. You know, data can show you stories that sometimes take you by surprise. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's what our tools try and help leaders, people leaders in organizations do is be open to hearing what's really going on for people. You will be surprised. You will find that areas are, are thriving that you didn't realize or, you know, coping better than you realize. And you'll find some that aren't. And then you can, you can, you can apply your attention to where it's needed. Yeah. Strengths focus and adjust. Yeah. And, and also I would imagine for you personally, just the heartening aspect of like, oh, it's, it is working and not just working in a way where like, oh yeah, I can see that our people are good, but oh, I can see where our people fared better and were more resilient and learned skills that of, of support and, and progress. Um, yeah. How's that feel for you? <laughs> Well, you try and create things that are useful, you know, that's, I think that's, that's, you know, and, uh, and I probably created two things before in my career, I thought useful was the Happy Planet Index, and then we did something called Five Ways to Wellbeing, which was for the UK government mm -hmm. on things people could do individually. And, and, and particularly the second was very pleasant because it was a tiny project for us and it just, it just, it just sort of went viral across different sort of uh, public health agencies across the world and people started using it because it was useful. And this is more intentional. I've tried to build this and it's taken quite a long time <laughs> to get to the Friday platform. But um, yeah, so it's been sort of working in, 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 in real for about two years now. We, we've been working with it and, it, and it and that's the, yeah, in a way, the most pleasing data. I mean, I've still got to just work out statistically quite what I think about it. But basically, I think we protected our clients from having a, a second dip and that is worth a lot to them. And uh, yeah, that's great. Oh, I love I love learning. I love learning that. I love hearing about it. Um, I saw your a speech you gave last week, um, yeah. the, the impulse for my outreach. Um, and in that speech, you talked about something that surprised me a bit. Um, well, I guess now in hindsight, I say it doesn't surprise me because I guess I watched it real time in my clients. But at the but at the time, you know, we'd made this assumption as as people went remote, um, as lockdown started that work life balance was gonna get better, right? Cause we're not commuting and we're with our families more, um, but that the, the data is showing that it got worse, right? People are feeling less balanced. Um, can you speak to that at all? And like, what, what do you think that's about and what, 
And is there any way that you are addressing that at Friday Pulse or that you might, like, what's your thinking around it? Yeah, so it took me by surprise, that data. So when I started looking at it, because we, we measure this weekly experience, but we also every quarter with our clients measure what we call a culture profile, which is 15 questions and included in those work-life balance. And the idea is these are the drivers of people's happiness at work. And I, I just, you know, I don't have so much time at the moment for doing the data analysis on the data we have. We basically present it back to our clients to empower them to do stuff with it. But, you know, I have been collecting the data into one global data set because of COVID, really. And when I looked at it first, I thought, God, that's a surprise. So team relationships and friendships at work were under pressure to going down. That didn't surprise me. And um, creativity and influencing decisions went up, I guess, because people have had to like adjust and, and be and has been in a sense more put down to the individual to do their own work. So in the way that makes sense too. But work-life balance was the biggest faller. And I had thought, oh, you get rid of the commute to work. So I know from other data that work is the second least activity in people's regular daily lives and the commute to and from work is the least happy. In fact, strictly speaking, the commute to work is the least happy, then the commute back from work and then work. Um, uh, so uh, those are the very regular activities. There are other things that can happen to people that are less happy, but the regular things that you do. So, okay, there you go. So I thought, well, get rid of the commute. People are going to be a bit happier. And and it's actually very varied. And, and, and I think one of the things is that people are working longer hours. So there's data coming out across the economy that people are finding it difficult to know when work stops and home starts. You know, I mean, for the first lockdown, I was working from my bedroom because... Um, um, we had two teens in the house who were working, uh, my wife, and so I just made a corner of the bedroom, which meant I woke up and there's my desk and I go to sleep and there's my desk. You know, we did we did start to get a thing where I put a blanket over my desk and my computer at night, you know, uh, you know, but it, it's it's it, it becomes less easy to know where you stop and where you start. And I think that's what people are struggling from. I'm actually well, I, I got very stressed actually last summer. I actually last July, you know, I. I I mean, this will make you laugh, but I sort of just was just exhausted and I sort of became tearful on the sofa. And and, and my wife looks at me and goes, Nick, I'm like that every day, every week. You just, <laughs> but you know, but it's just the stress just started to just get to you. And and I started to just, um, and actually what I did in the end, after talking a lot of my team, we've gone to a four day a week company and uh, we all decided that we would do that. Some, some, I mean, I'm now pretty much working five days again, but I guess come the summer, I'll probably go back to four days. But we we really decided we needed to look after our work-life balance a lot. And so that was something to to do that we could, you know, like let's work four days and then you can do other stuff. And people have kids at home, um, you know, so they need to spend more time in those. Some some of my team, one of mine started volunteering at a food bank on her day off, you know, and people do nice things with it. And actually it's it's actually good for the whole health of the company. Wonderful. I want to thank you uh, because I do. I personally try to make a, a point of, as a practitioner, both in, in fitness and someone who talks about positive psychology in public, I try to recognize my own human experience because I think there's there are too many people out there projecting perfection when they're actually struggling and very human. Um, and so thank you for being a person that recognized that like, hey, that was hard for me too. Um, because I, I always want to make sure I don't look like the shiny penny who, if you flip it over, it's all tarnish. Um, because we're all in a human experience, right? We're all still figuring out how to apply all of these same interventions in our own lives. And, you know, my meditation practice has fallen off in the winter and, you know, whatever. Um, and also, 
the, the further reflection on applying it to your own team once you learned the information. Um, because to me, all of that speaks to like your integrity as a, as an entrepreneur, as a practitioner, as a person. Um, and that's just awesome to hear about. I mean, I definitely think if something, I mean, I, I think that if, if I'm experiencing something, other people are too. I mean, that's sort of, but I, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's how you, I, mean, I think treating people that work with you as human beings and understanding that they've got their stresses, like, you know, a lot, you know, several of my team with young children just suddenly said, okay, I can work from 11 till three, and then I have to do this and that and that, you know, and I'll catch up in the evenings and it's, you know, fine, yeah. fine. It's, you yeah. know, it's like, you know, we know we have responsibility to clients when we speak to them. We know we have to get our work done. We're adults, you know, we, we <laughs> so what's the problem? I mean, it doesn't mean to say you don't have to give feedback to people about the quality of their work, but I don't think you should be prescriptive in how they work too much. Well, this is brings up something else that I had intended to talk about more about the happy planet index, um, which, well, let's just start with the, can you explain what the happy planet index is? And I know that's not your primary work right now, but I still think it's cool work. No, I mean, actually, we just, just starting to have meetings about doing one, um, uh, doing another Happy Planet Index. Um, so Happy Planet Index is, you know, I, I spent, my first publication was 1994, which was called the Index for Sustainable Economic Welfare. And it was a hugely complicated indicator. Uh, and it had 26 interlocking spreadsheets and basically <laughs> plotted what was sustainable well-being in the UK and how it changed <laughs> over time. Okay, and uh, well, actually welfare, and, and and it was it was it was great fun to do. Spent a lot of time in the basement of LSE Library digging out statistics and stuff. <laughs> I'm sure it was very fun for you. <laughs> yeah, it's very nerdy, very fun. All right, and it oh, was awesome. Hugely complicated, and and it used a nice trend line. And basically, I knew it was wrong because there were just too many assumptions in it. But it 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 made some impact in some ways. Anyway, when I was at New Economics Foundation, which is the think tank I worked at for more than a decade, um, I was asked, well, can you come up with something on, you know, more on sustainability? And I, and I came up with the idea of the Planet Index, which is basically to say that the aim of nations is to create good lives and they don't have to cost the earth. So the way that you do that is that you plot quality of people's lives against their ecological footprint and you create a sort of a graph with the nations scattered. So basically what it identifies is that there are countries which are richer and relatively happy if we look across the globe, you know, so the World Happiness Report was out last week and Scandinavian countries do well. And, you know, so we see, we know they're at the top of that, but they're using a lot of planetary resources to get there. And then there are other nations which are really doing very poorly on well-being, but they're not using many resources. So things like Sub-Saharan Africa, where people, you know, still leading short, unhappy lives. And then in the middle, you've got a sweet spot, which is you've got countries say Latin America, some Asian countries, which have got relatively contained levels of ecological footprint, they're probably too high, and relatively good levels of well-being. And so there's a trade-off between these. And so Costa Rica came out top of it. And, and, and actually, the first time I, so I showed you a graph just before this, which is very rough and ready. The first time I did a rough and ready calculation on, on Happy Planet Index, I saw that Latin America was going to do well. And I thought, that is interesting. Because my experience of Latin America is very vibrant. Uh, very community-led, and, and and yes, of course, there's deep problems in Latin America with violence, and it's 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 um, uh, troublesome export trade to North America, which could be called you know the war against drugs. But hey, who's consuming them? And um, you know, and uh, you know, and um, 
you know, and, and other issues, including entrenched misogyny in all sorts of places. But um, but they do have a joie de vie, and they uh, that whatever the prayer uh, vida, I think is what they call it. In you know, and 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 they 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 very very community led, very family led, and and people are generally happy. So I thought that was interesting, and so. Happy Planet is a challenge to saying where are we going globally and basically the thing is we I'm absolutely convinced we have to create good lives that don't cost the earth. I do think that people are becoming more and more aware of it you know uh, Trump was a was a was a was a last bleep of something I could really do I think you know what's Biden comes straight in so climate's top of the agenda you know even Boris Johnson in, in my country talks about climate a lot you know I think we do understand this is a huge issue to face them and we've got to plot away. I mean, climate change is really the unintentional consequences of how we go about our daily lives. No one is planning to destroy the climate, you know, even the people who are in denial, they really just want to protect their way of life. I think they, they yeah. so it's, 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 it's a very, very difficult issue. And the happy planet is just to go say, look, hey, the aim surely is to create good lives. And we just need to find a new way of doing it. And, and that, that shouldn't be beyond us. I hope it isn't. Thank you. Excellent explanation. Um, and I agree with, I don't, I don't know that there was a thing in there that I don't agree with. Um, so I'm behind, I'm on the projects I'm behind the whole thing. Um, and excited by it because it, you do a good job of articulating many thoughts that I've had that I have felt personally powerless to influence. Um, but I want to tie it back to the conversation we were having on work. We were like, this isn't complicated. We're trying to create good work, create good lives. We're adults. We'll get it done, you know, respond to what people need. That's how we prevent burnout. Um, and then you just now the the comments on um, the point of government is to create good lives for their citizenry. I think where where I feel the friction, not in myself, but in my desire to help us all find a, a meaningful, positive life is and not everyone agrees that that's the point. Um, and where in your efforts to get governments to subscribe to this reframe, um, which is such, like, you can, you talk about like big goals and big work, like, ah, yes, let me get the, the world's governments to care about happiness. <laughs> what in, what in your experience has been the friction? Well, I mean, the idea of governance should be about creating good lives. I mean, the issue is, is that our political systems tend to create governments that their main purpose is to get reelected rather than necessarily to do the most good. So we get into short-termism and, you know, you, you've no doubt heard of um, nimbyism, not in my backyard. In, in, in policy, we talk about NIMTO, not in my term of office. And, you know, trying to, trying to sort of delay things into other people's because you don't want to deal with them because they're difficult. So climate change often comes into that system, poverty does. Uh, you know, until they start biting people, people don't do enough, not enough feedback. It's not really, feedback rich enough governance you know basically we, we elect a government they have four or five years to do something and then we re-elect them yeah sort not very you know if you think, think at work you know where we tend to tend to have one-to-ones once a month once a week whatever you do you know we're not really getting that with our government so i think there's a there's a real problem with our democratic system about not getting enough feedback about what's going on but that that's a beyond thing but as in surely the purpose of 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 life should be for people to live a good life and then they become in and out groups issues that you know it's is it just for me and my family is it just for me and people that seem like me is it just for you know and and i and then we get into tensions and uh, and in a way are, are those just built into us i mean we are a species that has become you know over successful that masses of us and we try and be one globe which is a beautiful idea but 
clearly in our evolutionary past, we were small kinships and tribes and, and, and we, we fought to protect our own. So there's something very instinctual in us about doing that. And it's like, how do we work with those tensions? And I think that governance should really sit above that and help us, you know, respect the fact that people have identities, you know, which can be gender identities, racial identities, uh, where we come from, like there's always evidence that if someone has the same accent of you, you trust them much more, they have a different accent. You know, this is just unconscious behavior. Look more like us, we trust them more. So there's things that's very hard for us to move across, you know, like say with diet, you know, sugar is very attractive to us because it was rare, you know. So, you know, you know, there's things that don't necessarily help us function uh, brilliantly that we've got instincts about. And, and I think that's how we manage those uh, is, is, is a challenge. Tempted to go down the rabbit hole of the way that those instincts then get exploited in a capitalistic system. Because I don't think it's just democracy, right? Like sugar is yeah. a perfect example. Yeah. Um, su the supernormal stimulus of concentrated sweet was rare in a natural environment. And so you ate it because it would help you yeah. survive winter. Now it is hidden in food in order to manipulate us into overconsuming without getting proper nutrients so that we want more. And I think we see some of that same, uh, I mean, if we want to talk about bias, we see that exploited in media across the, you know, politically yeah. identified spectrum um, and trying to find any news information that isn't laden with that just to get you coming back to it. I mean, it's one thing that I saw affecting well-being in my clients throughout the, the last year has been the, the pull to have to check the news as soon as they woke up because they were so tied into the fear and if i could get them to break that habit and just wait a few hours to check the news their day was remarkably better yeah it is it is interesting isn't it our addiction to news and uh, i mean actually it's what trump played on brilliantly i mean i subscribed to the new york times just so i could get my fix of what the hell's he done today mm. <laughs> and and it's like i've, I've actually unsubscribed now because it's it's nice and dull <laughs> Hooray for dull news. I do check yeah. every day to get the numbers, but I also am going to throw out that we, we try to avoid too much name drop politics just in case uh, I would never want to alienate someone who would otherwise benefit from the information. Um, but I, I'm, I am with you in what you're getting at, right? Like, um, but I guess my, my point is that it's, it's not just the democratic institution, it's the democratic institution held up by a, a capitalist system that is... Um, benefited by not focusing on happiness. I think if one examines the capitalist system, there is much to um, critique it. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> you know, and I, I did spend my more radical youth doing that more. And I, I, I think now I've got to the age where possibly I leave that to younger, more radical people. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I don't know, because it's in some ways I think of, you know, if I'm very honest, I think of happiness as like a Trojan horse, because if we really took it seriously, we would unravel certain things. And I think the thing for me is that like, how do we change the narrative that we're thinking about people's experience of life, their well-being, their happiness away from their status, uh, you know, and um, and I think you know, it's actually an interesting thing that's going to we'll see play out over the next five, 10 years. I think how much are people changed by COVID? I mean, I, I don't think anyone's going to come out unchanged. Uh, not necessarily, you know, this has been a, a global trauma and we, we see 
after individual trauma, we see, you know, post-traumatic stress or we see post-traumatic growth. There are possibilities in there. And so we've all had to examine what's important to us. We've all learned things about ourselves, you know, and we've adjusted to some things, you know, and, and others were missing greatly. So, you know, it's like, but what have mostly people missed, you know, touch, yeah. seeing other people, you know, these very, very human connections, you know, have been what people I think are most thirsty and hungry for. And I don't think for many people it's going down the high street and buying clothes that they've really, I mean, they've missed it to an extent, but, you know, but I just think we will help people re-examine their priorities. And so will that help us slightly dematerialize? Well, I would hope, I would hope, but I, I, I don't know, humans are unpredictable creatures. Hmm. <laughs> I'm with you though, in seeing the moment of great opportunity in it, right? Hmm. For the number of people that can be turned to resilience and connection and meaning and purpose. Um, I think part of it is for those of us in a position to do that is also turning around and helping the people who are in the the stress of the trauma and how do we help guide them out of it as a, as a, not just a society, as a species. Yeah. Um, and if we leave them behind to languish, we're no better than any other moment of, of, of trauma and impact. Yeah. Um, and I want to believe that we have, we're starting to hit that critical mass. Um, I'm, I'm an optimist that way. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I'm an optimist too. Um, it certainly makes life more fun. Way more fun. <laughs> um, I have a few, I have a few, I, I hope they're little questions. Maybe they're big yeah. questions, but um, as we're wrapping toward the end here, um, I really want to know what it was like meeting with and working with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Oh, well, I didn't work with him. That's, I, 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 I've met him twice, but, um, and for short conversations, I haven't been in a working group with him or something. Like that. I've worked with Bhutan a lot. On gross national happiness so I, I i went out to bhutan four or five times and spent some sabbatical time there basically um and uh, i really enjoyed that um and you know at a personal level and i mean actually they didn't really take my ideas in the sense that you know i don't actually like gross national happiness as a measure too complicated too difficult and you know so um but i like it as a spirit but then also Bhutan is not as perfect as people think it is. It's, it's deeply hierarchical uh, and they have a small problem in the South with a bit of sort of um, ethnic cleansing, which is, you know, which they really don't like to talk about. And if you, you know, if you ask them questions about it, they get very defensive. So, uh, but having said that, if you look at where it sits geopolitically, it's very, it, it does very well because, you know, it's got China to the North, you know, separatist states of India to the South, Nepal, you know, so I think Bhutan does a pretty good job, but it is, um, yeah, it's a very interesting place. Yeah, yeah I wish I, I wish we had time and and can unpack um, the you know measuring happiness on the national level and where do we see that with Bhutan? I've I've, I've wanted to reach out to Alejandro Adler and have him on um, at some point. I just know he's very busy right now, kind of working on some of the COVID happiness measures in New York and contributing right. to the city. So I've been I've been waiting, biding yeah. my time for that ask, <laughs> but it's in the queue. Um, so. I, I've been reading up on, on you trying to come up with my own good questions. I came across um, Manfred Max Neef. Did I say it yeah. right? Yeah, uh, he was your one of your mentors and asked yeah. you, uh, most people don't ask big questions. And of course, immediately I got anxious that my questions weren't going to be big enough. Um, but what is the big question that you're asking right now? So Manfred is one of my mentors. And, and basically he said he thinks that people spend a lot of time on issues of what he called secondary importance. Yeah. And actually, um, so I think that basically my my 
my whole life has been thinking about what's the, the big question, which is how do we uh, change the narrative of life and actually create a language which is more coherent with people's experience. And so that's, so Manfred in that way fundamentally influenced the work I do, I do uh, specifically and tactically. You know, I'm working on tactics really at the moment in a way, which is like, how do you operationalize that? Because when I, I'd done a decade of work with, with Neff and I'd done my TED talk and TED talks is, you know, obviously a big peak experience in your career, right? And then after about a year, you work out, well, okay, I can become a professional speaker and I can earn very good money. Uh, you know, it's like, speech doesn't change anything really. And so I then thought, well, okay, actually I'd like to use it as something, how can I create something useful? So Friday Pulse is designed to, Get into people's weekly experience. We spend a lot of time at work, so it's a really valid way of reaching adults. And if I can get people to reflect on their happiness at work, I presume they're going to reflect on their happiness in life outside of it. So create something that is useful, and that continues to be my purpose at the moment, and probably will wrap me up for another decade. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love your focus on creating something useful. Mm. Um, I think there's so many people who produce ideas because they want to have an idea to produce as opposed to producing something that's going to have a, a meaningful impact in application. Um, and I'm, I'm such a hardcore applications person mm -hmm. that I, I relate to that on a deep level, clearly not as a statistician, as a person who's with people, but um, yeah. the need to have it actually be effective and to be able to see the impact of that for you in the numbers for me in someone's like body yeah, uh, is, is very core to me. And I get that. Um, and then my last, uh, last one, I think we're going to wrap it up with this one is, um, you'd mentioned you had your moment last summer where your wife found you like tearing up on the couch and she confessed and, and, and full confession for myself. I think there was a period last summer with everything going on in New York city and being in Brooklyn myself. And yeah. I'd moved, I'd had COVID, I'd had the flu and had like, like last year was And I was finishing my master's all at the same time. Um, I think I cried every day, uh, for like a month, but what did you change? to maintain or enhance your well-being when you had that moment of like, okay, I'm stressed. Like personally, I, I hear what you, you mentioned on your team, but what else did you gear shift for yourself? Um, I mean, I have a tendency to take on too much responsibility, you know, in the sense of like, you know, taking on all my team's issues, my, you know, my kids, my sisters, my mother, whatever. So it's a bit about creating boundaries for myself and, and you know, and taking more time out. And um, we've moved since then, but we did have a, uh, my wife is delightfully uh, crazy in that she, she had a hot tub. Uh, I moved in with her about five years ago. We're only relatively recent. And so I just decided I was going to go in the hot tub every day, nice. and, you know, you know, and just like, and just, you know, work out how I was chilling. I think I wasn't switching off enough and, and, and walking is very good for me for that. I'm, I'm, I love walking and, you know, last summer was a really good summer. So doing lots of long walks and uh, on my own, you know, it's like, I like walking with Zoe, but I also like walking on my own because that's reflection. That's my meditation. I, I, I'm not very good at sitting and meditating. I, I walking meditation is kind of what I do, you know, and how I empty my mind and think about things. So I did more walking and actually, to be honest, since winter, I've been a little less good at that. And I'm, beginning to feel that that's something I need to do more again as spring comes. Good. The trainer yeah. in me is all about that. Um, but also like the somatic embodied person in me is very aware that almost everything you said was something to do with your physical self, um, <laughs> unwinding your physical self, anchoring yeah. in your physical self. Um, and, and I just want to highlight that so that anyone listening, it's like, Hey, if you're not making the space, not just to shut off your mind, but to, 
to soothe or connect to what's going on in your, in your embodied experience, uh, maybe try that <laughs> for them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think burnout is when we lose connection to our bodies in lots of ways, you know, we, we, we're, we're pushing us and we, we ignoring the signals, you know, and we might power through them with caffeine, alcohol, um, other stimulants, whatever, whatever, you know, to sort of, and in the end it catches up, it catches up. And, and, and so you're better off listening earlier. You know, I didn't burn out last summer, but I was on the way towards it. And I think, you know, and I, I'm sure you and most of your listeners would have had a burnout experience or close one in their life. And, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's trying to catch the signals before something, you know, quite traumatic happens. Yeah. 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 Um, I think we'll, we'll leave it there for sake of everyone's time and sanity, but Nick, thank you so much for your, your time and your generosity with your expertise and, and you're clearly very smart brain. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking with you. That's, that's all right. And if people want to just think about their own happiness at work, they can just go to this website called fridayone.com, uh, which is something we devised and it's like a little five minute test that you can look at your own happiness at work and compare yourself to other people. It's not dynamic like the ones I was talking about. It's a static fix, but it's helpful for people to reflect. So, yeah. And is there anywhere else we can check out your work? I think you have your own website. Yeah, I have my own website, which is nickmarks.org, but that's more for my speaking, which I'm rather letting go at the moment. And then <laughs> fridaypulse.com is the whole organization, but Friday one takes you into that universe. For the so, individual. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really nice to chat.